This is Sober Company, a podcast about modern sobriety. My name is Lacey. My name's Nick. And today we talk about meditation with our friend Kunal Gupta. Kunal, get ready for it. He's a multi-hyphenate. He's the CEO of Polar, a global technology company. He has a newsletter, which you can go and sign up for at buykunal.com. It's, uh, it's pretty amazing and really centering, and Nick and I look forward to it every week. He has his own podcast called Year Zero, which is you know, about after coronavirus, AC, you know, where society is headed after this huge change we've all been going through. He is the director of the Foundation for the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto. He is a mindfulness practitioner, and he leads a weekday morning meditation for all of his friends and work colleagues. And very importantly, he leads a sober lifestyle, and he does that without having identified as someone with addiction, which is pretty incredible. So we loved this conversation. He's an incredible guy. Kunal really walks the walk. We hope you like it. All right. We have Kunal with us. Hi, Kunal. Hey there. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. And you're sitting in Toronto currently, right? I escaped New York and I'm in uh, the safe hands of Canada, the Canadian healthcare system, and uh, in my parents' home in Toronto. Wonderful. Yeah. A little jealousy there. For the people, you know, Nick and I have a meditation practice. It's, it's what helps keep us sober. But for the people out there who don't have a regular practice or maybe interested in getting into it, but maybe it's a little intimidating, it can be super intimidated, intimidating. I'd love for you to kind of share the basics of it so people can understand. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I actually wish I learned the basics of it when I started because it led to me uh, struggling a lot and getting really frustrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that was part of my journey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so I started to meditate five to six years ago, and I, I, I went into it thinking and expecting to be relaxed and calm and peaceful. And I learned that meditation is none of those things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if they happen, it's like by accident and a happy byproduct, but it's not actually the purpose and the intention. So I, um, I'm quite good with discipline and I used my uh, skill of discipline to meditate every single day for 500 days. Wow. Not feeling very peaceful or calm. And it was 500 days into meditating every single day. And that included doing a couple of 10 day retreats and a couple of seven day retreats and reading dozens of books and on top of the personal practice, like, I went into it <laughs> and I, I, re- I realized that meditation is not going to the spa in my mind. It's not about relaxing my mind. It's not about stopping to think. Meditation is about going to the gym and it's about strength training for my mind. And if I take my body to the gym, I don't actually go to the gym. <laughs> <It's a little laughs> but if I were to go to the gym, <laughs> I want to take my body to the gym. Um, and let's say I was, I was hypothetically lifting weights. Uh, while my while my arms are lifting weights, the muscles in my body actually are under a lot of tension. Mm-hmm. So a lot of stress being placed on the muscles in that moment when weightlifting is happening. It's and why do I do that? Well, I, I well, why does one do that? One would do that so that after they're done working out at the gym, their muscles after they've had some time to rest become stronger. And they could do things when they're not working out that like lift more things and be healthier and 
support different parts of their body. So similarly, like the process of meditation actually can be very stressful, very full of agitation, very active. That's been my experience. And that's actually the sign that I'm working my mind just the same way I'd be working my muscle at the gym. Um, so that's, that's the first thing is meditation is not about not thinking. Mm-hmm. It's about lots of thinking to be happening, just being aware of that thinking and treating it like a workout. Right. So how, like when you first started, did you have a certain amount of time that you'd meditate for? Did you, how did you, did you start with a short amount of time and then lengthen it or? Yeah. So I started with the guided meditation apps. I started mm-hmm. with 10 minutes a day. And then within a few months, I was, I got a little annoyed with the guidance because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it was like the only moment of the day I actually like would just sit be by myself, with myself. And what I do is I'd set a timer for another, like I do a 10 minute meditation, but I set a timer for 20 minutes on my phone. So the, the guided meditation was almost like a warm up mm-hmm. <laughs> for the, the 10 minutes for me to be in silence on my own. And that combination I found to be very, very effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you'll notice, I mean, Nick, you, I hope you've noticed this, like the meditations that I lead, I'm on the quieter side. Initially I talk a lot, but then during it, like uh, I leave lots of pauses and the other week, I don't know if you were in that one, I did a meditation where the entire thing was in silence. Um, I'm trying to leave more and more space for silence because I think that's an important part of the, the practice. And that's where we can build a lot of strength in mind. Right. Yeah, one thing I also notice about your meditations too is like you do a lot of work with the body as well. So I think a lot of times mm-hmm. we focus on meditation and the thoughts and working with that aspect of it. But what I find really refreshing about your meditations is that you do spend a lot of time in the body. And can you talk about maybe that connection between the mind and the body? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess, spoiler alert, there's nothing magical about the body. <laughs> when it comes to meditation or the way I use it, it's, it's really to give us an object of focus and one that's easy to focus on. It's much easier to focus on the body than it is on the breath. It's much mm. easier to focus on the breath than it is on our thoughts. It's easier to focus on our thoughts than it is on our emotions. Um, it's actually easiest to focus on our space. Like even right now with your eyes open, you can notice the light. You can notice the sound through your ears. You can feel the floor under your feet. Um, so I haven't actually published this yet on my blog. I'm sure I will soon. Although I think I've been saying that for years. Like if I were to draw a simple like treat for meditation techniques, it's kind of like four categories that I've seen, studied, experienced, practiced, and you know, somewhat taught. Actually, Nick, I'm curious if this, if this overlaps or aligns or even contradicts what you, what you guys probably learned in your teacher training. Um, but here it goes. Mm. So the first category I call observation techniques. And that's where mindfulness falls. And that's learning to observe reality as it is. That could be my space. That can be my body. That can be my breath. That can be my thoughts, my emotional state. So meditation I teach is, is generally an observation-based technique. And I find that to be very grounding because it's connected to reality. Another technique is, is, is verbalization. And that's where mantra comes in, chanting comes in, uh, transcendental meditation comes in. Um, you could say prayer is a form of verbalization. Um, you're verbalizing a thought, a saying. Uh, so I do like kirtan and chanting and that falls under verbalization. Um, and then... The third category, I'd say, is visualization. 
I'm not trying to visualize. Uh, so like I'd, I'd put all religious figures into visualizations. Like I'm visualizing a person. I'm visualizing an object. Mm-hmm. I can also visualize an idea. I can visualize an intention. Mm-hmm. I can visualize a light in my body. I'm sure people have done those types of meditations. Meta. I can visualize energy. I can visualize breath. Like even in yoga, when they like bring breath to your like right hamstring. You can't actually do that. <laughs> and it's, that's, that's, that's a visualization. <laughs> you can't even actually breathe into your belly. This might be my thing for everybody. Breath stays in your lungs. <laughs> um, when you breathe into your belly, what's actually happening is you're breathing into your lungs. Your diaphragm is pushing your organs into your belly, and that's what makes your belly feel full. Really? Wow. You just blew my mind right now. <laughs> <laughs> so is that like yeah like put your hand on your belly breathe into your hand yeah. and you're still breathing into your lungs you're just your lungs are pushing your, your diaphragm's pushing your organs into your belly mm. and, you're, you, and because you're visualizing it you're, you're you're activating those muscles to expand your belly it's great but it's a visualization technique <laughs> it's not an observation technique and then the fourth category is contemplation and that's, that's um, I, I put journaling under contemplation. Um, I definitely like sit and contemplate where it's like this thought is really bothering me or I feel really inspired by this. I'm just going to sit and contemplate it. So I let myself like go loose on it. Um, whiteboarding, could they say, is a contemplation technique. Mm-hmm. Um, where you take a topic. So in contemplation, there's usually like a focus with a topic. Uh, so that's my, that's my like, guide to meditation techniques yeah. mm. and it, it doesn't actually matter which one you adopt it's, they, all, they all do the same thing they all cultivate the skill of awareness great and so Kunal if you could lead us into a meditation now I think that would be a really helpful way to start out this, uh, this podcast I think it would uh, lead us in the right direction cool yeah you guys want to meditate yeah Thank you for, yeah, thank you for asking. Let's, uh, let's do it. Okay. So if, you're li- if you're listening to this, sit, uh, sit comfortably. Sit up tall and relax your hands, relax your shoulders, relax your jaw, and relax your eyes. Start by taking a deep inhale. And a slow exhale. Feel the floor under your feet, the chair under your seat. Visualize where you are. And if you haven't already, bring your eyes to a close. Notice the weight of your legs. Feel the weight of your arms. Notice the strength in your spine and torso. Notice lightness in your head.
begin to quietly watch your body breathe. Notice each inhale and each exhale. mind begins to wander, no, that's completely natural. You can gently bring it back to your body or to your breath. Take a deep inhale and a slow exhale. Feel your body. Visualize where you are. Wiggle your fingers and wiggle your toes as you slowly open your eyes and come back to your space. Thank you so much, Kunal. That was wonderful. I feel like we could start every podcast that way. At least for yeah, I think we should. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you totally should. And like you're, you're a trained teacher. Um, I, I, uh, that's probably like the first meditation I've led today. Oh, wow. Um, it's the evening time that we're recording this podcast. Mm-hmm. I, um, I actually start most of my meetings with the meditation. I run a company. Today I had, let's see, in the afternoon there was a call with um, my friends at the Washington Post who are one of our clients. Um, we just got onto the call and I just saw everyone's faces and I was like, hey, everyone, you want to meditate? And there was this awkward silence for a moment. And then somebody said, sure. And then everyone else said, sure. I said, okay, let's do it. Uh, and then earlier in the day, I think it was at one o'clock, another one of our clients I was presenting over Zoom, probably like 30 people on the call. Uh, and they're a pretty loud bunch, actually. Mm-hmm. And they're normally in sales roles. And, uh, and I intentionally offered the meditation as a way to focus and quiet everything down a little. And uh, they were super appreciative of it, um, especially at a time like this. But uh, in general, uh, for the last few years, actually, I've been starting my client meetings, team meetings, board meetings, everything with uh, short meditation. That's really great. And I think it's one of those things that people do feel awkward about. I mean, I used to work at a newspaper and I cannot imagine (laughs) having meditations as part of that culture, but I would have embraced it completely. And it just takes that one person to introduce it, to make it okay, to make it part of the culture, you know, to normalize it, bring it into the Mm -hmm. conversation. Yeah. And I, I find like, especially for, for those uh, newer to meditation, meditating with somebody you know, and like Nick, the morning sessions I've been hosting, the live meditations from my friends, my team, my clients, 
um, I have a connection to everybody who's invited today. And that actually makes a difference. As when you meditate with friends, when you meditate with a teacher or somebody that you know, then I think you become just a little more open, a little more vulnerable, a little more trusting. Mm. Those are all ingredients that help you with your practice. Um, whereas when I first started, it was I was definitely like reserved and had lots of great teachers and guided apps and teachings. So it wasn't a knock on the instructors by any means. It was more on, on myself actually not being as open to it. Um, so friends help with the openness. The vulnerability. Mm. Yeah. How yeah. did you, what led you to becoming interested in it? I think meditation is a tool. And it's a tool to build a skill that I call awareness. So I think there are a lot of skills that we learn, whether it's learning a language or driving a car or cooking a meal or programming language or whatever it may be. Um, and they're all very like activity or domain or function specific. But if we think of awareness as a skill on, on its own, it's something that is applied and can be applied to like every domain and every function. So it like cuts across everything. And that's why I'm like obsessed with this idea of awareness. I made it one of our company values like five years ago when I started down this, this path. Uh, so meditation is like a tool that helps build the skill of awareness. Right? Awareness is, is kind of my obsession. And what is, what is so important about awareness to you? What does awareness bring you or give you? It helps me navigate life with the lights on. And I realized that before I was going through life with the lights off. Mm -hmm. And once the light turns on, um, I start to see things about myself, start to see things in the world that I wasn't aware of, I didn't see before. And then that, that's had a profound impact on the choices that I, that I make in life. Um, I mean, if, if the light is on and I can see more, I'm going to make different slash better. Yeah. Um, being sober is one of them, which I'm sure we'll get into. But uh, meditation or awareness just allows me to see things more clearly. And what I see isn't always pleasant. Like I, I, I say all the time, awareness does not discriminate. Mm-hmm. I become aware of the things that are beautiful and pleasant. And then I'd also become more aware of the things that are ugly and really unpleasant. I was going to say, could you give us an example of maybe a couple of things recently that, because there's also noticing the noticing, right? That's another skill in terms of awareness. But mm. is there something that comes to mind recently that would serve as a good example that maybe you wouldn't have been as aware of if you didn't have this skill? Yeah, tons, tons. Um, I mean, I think we're, we're in this like a month into lockdown during this global health pandemic. Uh, there are these valleys that I feel I've been going through, and I think others have as well. Um, and awareness has helped me like become aware of that and, and navigate. So, like the first one was like four weeks ago. I left New York, uh, and at the without any of us choosing, like everything changed in terms of the lifestyle, the environment, a lot of chaos, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of unknown. And that, that actually got me to a pretty kind of low state energetically, emotionally. I had trouble sleeping um, for like four or five nights in a row by myself waking up feeling stressed and anxious. And I was like meditating extra and still like all of these um, feelings were coming up. 
Uh, and then I just continued to like journal and meditate and yoga and all my practices while making sense of this new reality that I was in. And then realized that, okay, <clears throat> my team is okay. My family's okay. My friends are okay. Like things are different, but things are okay. And that's how I got out of the first valley. But then I fell into this like second valley when I realized that I'm okay, but the world is not okay. Right. And that led to feelings of helplessness and feelings of, of concern. And what got me out of the second valley, which sometimes I still slip back into, I've noticed, what got me out of the second valley is finding hope and finding inspiration, really for the future of humanity, realizing that a lot of suffering is happening in the world, but a lot of change is happening. And it's um, the space being created to, to make some really fundamental changes that I think could put like, humanity on a different course. Um, that's a very big statement, and that's really been a source of hope for me personally that's helped lift me out of this, this second valley. Um, and I'm sure there's more values to come. I'm kind of feeling still a little bumpy, as I'm sure we all are. But I'd say, like, yeah, the, the, the tools um, that build awareness have helped me just ride this ride this time yeah. with my eyes open with my eyes fully open yeah it's beautifully put i think it's really interesting the way that you talk about meditation because it's very of the world and you're like an active participant in the world but i think at least you know i'll speak for myself when i first like started meditating i always pictured like a monk out of society up in a mountain somewhere a very like personal practice and even for myself, it started kind of as that personal practice. Um, is that how you got started with meditation? Or was it always this thing that, um, you know, as you're describing, it was part of your business, you as an entrepreneur? Like, how did you first get started with this practice? Yeah. You no. Know, and I guess you asked part of this as well before. They didn't fully answer. <clears throat> so it's about five and a half, actually almost six years a year now. And, you know, born and raised in Canada and, you know, very fortunate to be well supported uh, from my family. And um, Canada is a great place to grow up. <laughs> um, <laughs> healthcare, education, <laughs> you know, those basic things. Yeah. We get them for free. <laughs> um, and the quality is very good. So I uh, went to a good school and, I had lots of opportunities and I started a business right out of school and that was 12 years ago. Um, business, lots of ups and downs as, as you'd expect. Uh, the technology, it's a technology business. Um, and when you start a business, there's always something wrong <laughs> with the business. It's either I, 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 in meditation, I contemplated this a few years ago and I, I, I summed it into four things. You either have like a people issue, you have a cash issue, you have a product or service issue, or there's a customer or market issue. One of those four things is always wrong in a business. And there could be two things wrong. That means you're probably feeling a little stressed. If there are three things wrong, then you're, you're going to be going out of business very soon. And if there's three things wrong, then you don't have a business. And it's this game of like spinning plates. And I, I fooled myself. I fooled myself into thinking, okay, yeah, yeah, once I solve this cash issue by raising some money, then it'll be good. Uh, once I solve this people issue by hiring for these roles, then it'll be good. Once I solve this product issue by like reprioritizing what we build and how we work on it, it'll be good. 
And I spent like seven years continually like jumping between all of these issues. And it's fun. I mean, it's something to do and it's problem solving and challenging and productive. And so that keeps me engaged. So like five and a half, six years ago, I got to this point where it was just one day. I walked into my office and I was in Toronto at the time and I just sat down at my desk. Uh, it was in August 2014. I remember like the day vividly. And I just went through this mental list in my head. And then I realized for the first time in my business life, nothing was broken. Uh-huh. Everything was working. Yeah. It was profitable. We had cash. Uh, a customer hadn't left us in a year. Uh, nobody in my team had left in 18 months. The product actually works. <laughs> um, everything was working. And I was like, oh. And I felt this like boredom. I was like, I actually don't know what to do. <laughs> and then my, then, yeah, then my attention focused on my personal life. And I was uh, I had a very nice lifestyle. Um, I was in a, a serious relationship. We were living together. had a fancy car. My sister lived a 10-minute walk away. My parents a 20-minute drive away. I had a trainer, uh, active social life. I was drinking a lot, partying a lot, uh, relatively responsibly, traveling, taking vacations. Like anything I said that was important to me at that stage in my life, I had it. Uh, thanks to a lot of hard work, a lot of support, and a bunch of luck. So I was like going through this like professional and personal checklist in my mind that morning, sitting at my desk, realizing there's actually nothing I want in my personal life. <laughs> it's not there. And then there's this big pause. And I realized, whoa, I think I've made it. I think I got to the top of this mountain that I've been climbing. I think I crossed the finish line of this race that I've been running. Then there was a longer pause. And then I realized I didn't feel any different. And I expected to. I expected to feel happy. I expected to feel successful. I expected to feel satisfied and accomplished. So it's like I crossed the finish line and I'm looking around and none of those feelings that I expected were sitting there. Mm. And that was the moment that I, that I turned inwards. And I didn't realize it, but that was the moment for me that everything changed and that uh, at that moment, there was this, at a deep level, this, this like rejection of the values and beliefs that I had followed and practiced to get to that point in my life. And this, this questioning started saying like, do I still think and believe that to be true? Because I'd inherited all, like we inherit all these values and beliefs from society, culture, teachers, religion, parents. And that was the moment where I I opened my eyes. And then I started to discover meditation and mindfulness practices like yoga and journaling. I started to read different types of books and started to go on some retreats in the month that followed. Uh, And then everything changed. Um, Just stopped like drinking probably like four or five months after that. My relationship with money changed. My relationship with stuff changed. Um, the relationship I was in like ended and changed. Uh, actually, pretty much like everything in my life wow. changed. Wow, that's a crazy story. That story is insane. It's actually, well, I guess it's interesting. Just you know, just comparing it to my story and Lacey as well. Like because we came to it like there was still suffering, but in our cases, the suffering was very apparent because of addiction and this thing that we couldn't we couldn't like actually get over but in your story too it's you had everything that you wanted and there's still that kind of like suffering as well 
when yeah, you get it. So really. I mean, it's a, it's an addiction at a, at a meta level, right? Yeah. Of like more with everything. <laughs> yeah. And then getting it and then not feeling it and then kind of hitting a point where it's like, ah, I don't, I don't think this is it. <laughs> yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think, you know, I think we've talked about this amongst ourselves of, I think, Getting sober is kind of taking the quote-unquote red pill. I use the matrix analogy a lot, but and, and mindfulness is too. It's choosing to see reality, and like you said, whether that is that means a lot of beauty, and it also means a lot of ugliness and hurt and pain as well. And being able to choose that over and over again, as opposed to you know doing something that will take you away from that pain. So, yeah, I think you're one of the people, uh, Nick and I talk about this, not like in a gossipy way, but we'll both notice it where it's evident when someone's practice, it's, it's very evident when someone's practice is part of their life fully. And you're one of those people where having a conversation with you, you're fully present, you're taking your time, you're thinking about things. It's very clear. Your practice just shows up like on your face. Yeah, totally. I remember like the first time I met you, I was like, who is this guy? You know what I mean? Like, it's so rare to meet people who are like so present with you. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, there's there's the common John Bass quote, if you think you're enlightened, go live with your parents for a week. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I've been living with my parents for four weeks now, and I know I'm not anywhere close to being enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a reason I'm sitting in the Bronx and <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to ask you actually because you brought up sobriety as something that you started practicing as part of your mindfulness practice almost like how did that come up with you how did you make that decision because I know a lot of people who practice meditation mindfulness and they still drink or do drugs and also actually in the wellness industry there's a lot of psychedelics and substances Cannabis. that are being used in that way, you know? So I'm just curious as to why you chose sobriety. Yeah. Yeah. We can, I mean, we've, we've talked a bit about this. I've asked, I've asked, I've challenged you guys with the question of sobriety, you know, in relation to alcohol or to other, you know, substances mm-hmm. and drugs as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm happy to like, we can come back to the, the drugs and, um, and psychedelics piece. I'll speak about alcohol okay. and relationship to it. I'd say, um, over the years, it's been like a social relationship. I mean, the business I run is in the advertising industry, and it'd be very common for me for years, probably my early to mid twenties, to have a few drinks after work every single day of the week with people on my team, or with clients, or with friends. And that was like lifestyle, and um, I had enough financial means where I didn't have to think about that at all. <clears throat> and um, my body actually was the first thing to to give in more than first, more than my mind or my emotions, uh, was my body. It was probably like four months after I, that moment I explained, um, where I turned inwards, I was at my uh, close friend's wedding and I had, I'd, I'd reduced my drinking quite a bit to maybe like every few weeks from before it was probably every few days. And before that was every day. So so like every few weeks and my body was already starting to like, say like, I don't really like this. <laughs> and I was too consumed with like reading and meditating to be going out after work anyways. 
So mm-hmm. those choices changed. So my lifestyle changed because my interests changed. Um, but then after this this wedding, and I was like, I was the best man. I was very involved in organizing it. And it was a multi-day Indian wedding. And the last night was the reception and kind of my duties were done. I might have had like two or three drinks. It was my first time having uh, something to drink probably in a few weeks. And the next morning I woke up. I was in California. I was in a hotel. And I just remember feeling my stomach <laughs> and feeling my head. And then that's where my mind kicked in. My mind said, you're done. Like, I'm done feeling this way <laughs> physically. Mm. I'm feeling this way mentally. And that was the last time I had something to drink. And that was five plus five and a half years ago. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and I think, do you, did you start piecing together the mindfulness piece in sobriety after that? Or were you already contemplating that part of it before you got into... You know, because you obviously a physical a physical reaction is what really inspired the change. But I think you know yes. it's it, one of the tenets um, of Buddhism is to not take any substances that alter your mindfulness, and alcohol is clearly one of those substances that would do that. But a lot of people who identify with as a Buddhist or who practice mindfulness are like, yeah, yeah. It's like it's like a lot of Catholics who have sex before marriage, even though that's technically a rule. <laughs> You know, it's one that people overlook a lot. So were you already thinking about that part of it, of sobriety? I don't think I was, I don't think it was consciously. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was definitely happening from a lifestyle choice standpoint and the company I was keeping and the people I was like gravitating towards that, you know, alcohol wasn't part of the, the social fabric of our connections and communities where previously it, it definitely was. Mm-hmm. But I will say, like, the, the physical reaction was my, that was the tipping point, but I wouldn't say that was, like, the only inspiration. That's what, like, crossed, put me over the edge, was my listening to my body. But there's clearly other things as well. A teacher actually had explained this, um, but I discovered it a few years later. But I, I really connect with it. And that's, if, if you just I'll, visual, I'll take you down a quick visualization. So it's like I had a whiteboard, <laughs> whiteboard this for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is, there's a lot of Buddhism in this in this framework. So if you draw a circle, you know, in, in, in your mind, and in the middle of it, put suffering, and that's the default state for humanity. There's a state of suffering, and that's a very Buddhist view. Mm-hmm. And then to the left of it, you can draw another circle, and in it, you can write ignorance. And then from the suffering circle to the ignorance circle, you can put an arrow. And it's a one-way arrow. And what takes us to that state of ignorance are things like alcohol, drugs, Netflix, Instagram, shopping. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of things that can take us from a state of suffering once we become aware of I am suffering to, okay, I want to ignore with my own suffering. Mm-hmm. And all of these things help me ignore my own suffering. Um, we all know that these are all temporary. <laughs> so right. you can draw another arrow back from ignorance to suffering. And that's a loop. And then uh, it's very easy to get stuck in this loop where we keep going in circles and the hit has to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. I'm suffering. I need to take a bigger hit to get to a state of ignorance. I end up back at a state of suffering and then I'm kind of stuck there. So that's, that's kind of, that's one mode. And then on the same visualization of the right of the circle of suffering, you can put a circle and you can call it happiness or contentness or peace. 
I mean, you can just draw a straight arrow from suffering to the happiness circle. And that's the path of awareness. And I'm like somewhere halfway, maybe, <laughs> between the happiness circle and self-declared. And, and once, once I started to cultivate a quality of awareness in my own being, I started to like see glimpses of peace, experience moments of feeling content, like in a very inner way, not a pleasure sense way, but an inner way. And I realized that like life is beautiful and life can be beautiful if I open my eyes. Mm-hmm. And once I start to see that beauty, then I have zero interest whatsoever to be in a state of ignorance. Mm. Cause that takes me away from this, this path. And like this, this path from circle suffering to happiness, it's just a one way, it's a one way path. <laughs> there's no, there's no turning back. That's why I like the choices that I've, that I've made. Um, I was able to make them with like such conviction. There's like no doubt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll get into this, right? Like, you know, I'm in lots of situations that have alcohol that have other things that I've chosen not to do. Um, even things like Instagram. Right. <laughs> and it's one of my problems. Yeah. I have, yeah. <laughs> I have, I have, I have so much conviction. I've like no doubt in my mind of me like slipping or falling prey to those because like I have no interest to be in a state of ignorance. Mm. I want to be in a state of awareness. Um, and that's, that's a one-way path. So what do you do? There's multiple things I want to touch on, but what do you do? So this is my problem currently, and maybe you can help me with it. But it, I'm not having that problem so much right now in the current state we're in. But when I go to the office and I'm dealing with whatever all day, and then I come home, I want to numb out. And of course, I'm not using any substances to do that now. So I Netflix for a couple hours. And Nick, is true that I shouldn't be too hard on myself about that. But I also would like to use that time more efficiently and like learn during that time more. You know, I could be drawing or painting or reading or, you know, something that could be pleasurable but not numbing. How do you, like when you're feeling, do you just sit through that, feeling of discomfort of wanting to numb out and choose not to, or what do you do in those moments? Yeah, that's a, that's a great, that's a great question. So I, I, I definitely know from my own experience that there, there is value in, 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 in having a distraction yeah. because it actually does give the mind rest. It does give the mind a break, just like, like your body can't be at the gym all day long. It mm-hmm. needs a break. Uh, the mind can't be at the quote-unquote gym, which is a working and knowledge-based field, which most of us are in, mm-hmm. um, using our minds versus our bodies to create value and productivity. Conversation like we're doing right now. Uh, even meditation, like meditation is very strenuous on the mind. It's not relaxing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can get into that too if you want. But like meditation is working out the mind. It's not taking the mind to a spa. Mm-hmm. It's taking the mind to a gym. Actually, I'll pull it up on my phone. So at the start of this lockdown, a month ago, I made a list of practices for myself. (laughs) So the first people I'm sharing this list with. I just made this like, it's like a menu, actually. It's like a mindful menu (laughs) for myself. Nice. So the list of practices has meditation, uh, pranayama, which is breath work, the yoga philosophy, asana, which is is yoga Mm -hmm. for, for the body, 
uh, strength training. Uh, strength training means like it's, it's very lightweight strength training <laughs> using my body weight. <laughs> to be very clear, um, walking, uh, journaling, reading, uh, mantra, which is like chanting meditation, uh, dance. I don't even know show you your virtual dance parties available. Kirtan, which is part of the yoga philosophy, it's 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 chanting an instrument. It's like it's the music of yoga, mm. but it's uh, like if you think of Krishna Das, if you've heard Krishna Das, that's Kirtan. Okay. Uh, that's, but it's 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 really about the emotional state. It's not really about the singing or the instrument. Um, uh, crying is one of my practices, mm. and then sleeping as an intentional practice as well. Um, so that's that's my list of that's my menu. That's wonderful. Um, you don't see Instagram or Netflix on yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> I I have a, I have a different issue that's actually prevented me from like watching because my parents and they watch a, they pretty much watch a movie every single night and I've actually wanted to watch a movie more to just hang out with them mm-hmm. than even watching the movie but I think in the thirty opportunities I've had in the last month I've I think watched one or two movies with them uh, and I don't think I finished either either of them I got up and left. Uh, the reason is I, yeah, I struggle. I, I, I struggle with, or I have felt I've been struggling in the last month with actually, I think it's not funny, calming down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I've struggled with pausing um, from, and I've struggled with like choosing to be versus always choosing to do. Yeah, I have problems with that as well. Yeah, it's actually. I want to give, give a plug for your uh, blog, you know, findfocus.today, because you actually just published an article about this very issue. And I think Lacey and I talk about this a lot. Maybe it's a New York thing. I just feel like you just are always on. If you're not doing something, like, what are you doing? You know? It's your like, um, self worth is tied. Yeah. And especially um, you, you, you as a person, yeah, as an well. entrepreneur, and like everything that you're doing and everything that you accomplish. Um, the practices that you just described are all, I could see it as taking that pause as a very difficult thing to do. Cause you think like, what am I doing? What am I accomplishing here? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And like, like yesterday, I'll share with you yesterday. I, I found myself quite like frustrated throughout the day. And like, that's the issue with awareness. Is you like aware of your frustration mm-hmm. is happening? <laughs> um, you can become more frustrated because you're frustrated. Mm-hmm. And I just like, I, 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 I was choosing to feel frustrated about just normal things happening in the business, with my parents, with my body, in my mind, with friends. I just like, I chose to interpret everything with a slight like negativity bias mm-hmm. versus positivity bias. And then um, I was having dinner with my parents and uh, you know, I, I do feel for my parents. Um, like they're the teenagers right now. Like I'm the one like <laughs> grafting them and like uh, <laughs> giving them some like feedback and input. Uh-huh. Um, and then it's sometimes on, on, on food choices and health choices, they've become like super healthy. Uh, but they do have like their own health issues that I, I try to remind them of. <laughs> right, right. And I was, I was, um, I think I just expressed some of my frustration last night over dinner. Um, and I was aware of that and I said, like, I'm just feeling really frustrated today. It's not you guys. Don't worry. Um, we had dinner. It was pretty like, we we're all pretty like quiet. It wasn't actually quite pleasant. Um, 
when they they saw that I was self-aware enough, so they weren't trying to like fix me or like tell me what to do. Mm. Um, they just kind of gave me space, actually, which was probably the best thing I needed. But then after dinner, instead of like hanging out with them more, I just like I just need some space, so I, I went upstairs, and then I just started playing some kirtan. Um, like the Bhakti Center has been live streaming kirtan every night at 8 p.m. So I just sat down on a cushion, I was just playing that and singing along with their guided kirtan for like half an hour. Within like five minutes, I started to cry. <laughs> and clearly there's like emotion for the day, just like there, and then there's a release. When I started to sing, I started to sing louder and a smile started to show up on my face for the first time in the day. And then I felt like a 180 in my state. So like within that half an hour of practice, my state just changed to one of lightness, to one of positivity. And then I went downstairs and um, like hugged each of my parents and just said like, thank you for the space. I feel very different now. Everything changes. And they're like, great. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just like hung out a bit. I read, went to sleep early. Um, so that was an example of using the practice mm-hmm. to, it's like a menu. It's like a prescription, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm. awareness is like a, like a self-doctor. It's like, ah, like I'm feeling emotionally charged right now. I just like snapped at my parents. So like having an extra serving of food mm. <laughs> and uh, the prescription was take some space and go like sing and cry. Yeah. Uh, and then did that. And then like I saw state change like very quickly. Yeah. And I, I love that crying is on your list of on your menu. I mean, I, I, you know, I, it's hard for me even as, a gender that's it's more acceptable to show emotion. Um, it's still hard for me to allow for those emotions to come up. And I think, I mean, Nick has seen me cry a bunch, so he would probably disagree with this. But <laughs> throughout the day, like just like what you're talking about, like those moments where I feel it welling up, I can sometimes just be like, no, because I it's. I'm scared that it's not going to end or I don't know what's going to happen with it. But you're right. It's, it's usually just a release. And I think... Hmm. Don't you feel so good afterwards? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're right. It does feel... And it also feels like I took care of myself. Like I, I consciously allowed myself that moment. I was kind of like kind to myself by allowing myself to feel those emotions. Um. So yeah, it's, 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 it's having a crying practice is very helpful. And what I mean by that is tools, like, especially like, you know, spending a lot of time in New York, we can easily believe that we need to do everything on our own. We need mm-hmm. to be independent. I've become so dependent on so many tools <laughs> and like my crying tools are uh, probably three. One is Actually, I could think of a lot more now. Hmm. Uh, there's certain like yoga poses, especially anything to do with like the hips, and there's science behind that. Right, right. That 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 is a trigger. Um, there are a couple of like bhajans or kirtan songs that I've just associated in my mind. Maybe I heard them when I had an emotional release. So that association was made. Mm-hmm. Um, certain like people in my life, and that includes like my sister. I'll associate very specific things that have happened in their lives that, that were sad and mm. um, that really touched me. Uh, but then also like moments of inspiration and hope 
and ideas, whether they're grounded or not, just things that like get me lifted or that I think that are beautiful. Mm. Um, so it's anyway, I just share that as like a menu of crying triggers. Yeah. And to not be shy. <laughs> I just pull them out saying like, I need to, I need, to, I need something. I need to aid right now. <laughs> like aids and tools are very helpful. Like yeah. yoga, it's like a yoga block. Yeah. Um, yeah. My yoga teacher training. That's when I learned that yoga blocks are culture teaches us. <laughs> but if you're good at yoga, you don't need a yoga block. Uh, my teacher training taught me that uh, to be good at yoga, you actually do need yoga blocks. <laughs> mm. uh. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I can think of some of my crying triggers. Nick, can you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm thinking of the last time I cried, which was fairly recently. It was like right when coronavirus like broke out and we like started working from home. And I was just like, I don't know what's going on. And I was, well, I was watching the Netflix. I was watching The Office, like numbing out, you know. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I don't know, something about that show and, like, what was going on with, like, Jim and Pam. And I just started, like, crying. And it wasn't, like, because of Jim and Pam. It's because of whatever was going on with me. But that was kind of, like, the trigger for it. But Yeah. Yeah, no, it totally triggered it. But I really like, like, the way, like, Kunali, you're putting these practices. And even, like, going back, like, to to that kind of diagram that you said about ignorance, awareness, and happiness – thinking about like being intentional about it as a practice instead of being more on the ignorant side and kind of numbing out and that stuff coming out, just coming out because it needs to come out versus like bringing that intentionality of it, which is much more on the other side towards like the happiness side that you're describing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's get, pretty mind blowing. Yeah. We get, we get, we get, we get one life to live that we're aware of in, in our current like, form of consciousness and and a, a really full life is one filled with awareness where I'm awake mm-hmm. and I'm intentional and I'm choosing. There's so many opportunities to be, be for our bodies to be like, and I know this is not about death, but like I've, I've thought about, I've reflected a lot on death and unfortunately we're in this moment in time where we're witnessing a lot of it around us. Mm-hmm. I'm prompted uh, and I'm called for and some of it, many of us believe to be preventable, could have been preventable. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hope to minimize it. And that's why we're all like staying in lockdown. <clears throat> it's not because we want to be in lockdown. It's because we want to minimize like death and suffering in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but the death that we, that we, that we see, that we hear about, that we mourn is death of the physical form of the body. And obviously our bodies have a natural lifespan and like premature death is really sad when, of the body dies or organs fail that cause the body to die ahead of its lifespan, what it's capable of living. So what we don't mourn, what we don't talk about, what we don't witness is <laughs> the body's alive, but like the mind and the heart are dead. Mm. And like, that's a really sad thing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something we can actually also prevent. And that's something we can also change. So like, it's like we're locking down and, and taking precautions to prevent like, harm and suffering to our body. This comes back to sobriety. For me, it's it's actually that was that was causing like harm. That was causing me to to be dead actually in my mind. Yeah. Uh, and not connected to reality. For sure. I think you <laughs> we both can identify with that. So. Like meditation is like the ventilator of like what a ventilator is to a body right now in the middle of COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. That's what meditation is to the mind. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, I think it's it's really helpful. I, I mean, I find it, and I don't. I mean, I personally find it really inspiring when people choose sobriety when they don't come from an experience of addiction. One, because it's just like nice to have a brother in arms. Um, but I also love to hear about that experience of, you know, going through life, choosing not to do the socially acceptable thing. Because Nick and I, you know, it, it wasn't much of a choice. I mean, yes, we could choose to kill ourselves basically, but... Or you're, you, you're choosing to be, you know, physically more healthy, but also more mindful. And um, I'd just love for you to speak about that more about, you know, I know, I guess there's not a specific question, but if, if you could just speak to your experience as a sober person that, you know, isn't doing it. Yeah. Yeah. For, for, first of all, I appreciate the space to talk about this. I mean, as you can tell, I love talking about meditation and I, my joke is I'm either always in meditation or talking about meditation. <laughs> like a like case in point of our conversation and, and my day today, probably. Uh, but I, I, I get lots of opportunities to talk about meditation. I actually don't get any opportunities to talk about being sober mm. and definitely not in a like welcoming, like open way. It's mm. more like you know, I have to defend or explain why. Mm-hmm. And there's a fear of judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like no fear of judgment. I'm like, yeah, I'm a yogi and I meditate and I do all these things. Uh, but there's definitely like fear of judgment of saying I don't drink. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel, but I feel. I, I, I think about it in a reflection of society versus of only myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I appreciate the space to talk about this and the space you're creating for others as well. Um, so thank you on behalf of many of us <laughs> to create this space to to talk about a topic that's not talked about. And that, that I definitely feel needs to be talked about. Uh, so my experience with being sober, there's like two dimensions, right? So there's the inner dimension, which is any urge or inner feeling or desire. And I think you've gotten a feel now that like, I don't have that. And I, I can appreciate that those coming through an addiction path or other paths may be in a different situation where the, the pressure, the feeling can be internally um, driven. Mm-hmm. It's not for me. Um, so I feel very like good and a lot of conviction inside. I think the outside piece, it's not that it's led to desire or any wavering. It's just present. <laughs> and it's been present for the five and a half, six years and the social situation, the environment I find myself in. So that's, that's running a business in the advertising industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's being single and going on States. It's having a large extended family where alcohol is at our, our family functions, mm-hmm. uh, and then it, and then the obvious of just you know social life, and being a city person and you know living in cities like Toronto and New York and traveling to cities like London and Singapore and Sydney and San Francisco and you definitely identify with cities. And alcohol and cities go hand in hand, especially the cities that I go to. So I say the external piece has been one of like surprisingly still adjustment five and a half years into this thing. And I will say that I identify as a leader. I am a pretty like strong personality, like I'm not shy. And I actually feel for the, for the people that may not be as used to being in leadership roles publicly, 
who may not be as comfortable like speaking up for themselves and other domains in life to now have to also like speak up for oneself when it comes to being at a restaurant for a business dinner and everybody orders a glass of wine and you say water please. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a really, you know, I think it's taken practice for me personally. And I, you know, at this point it's, it's a huge part of my life and it's part of my identity. Um, for many reasons. Because, and part of it is that piece of making my decisions very vocal so that it makes it easier for people who may be listening who it's not as easy for so that they have an ally. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure you're doing that for other people as well with your decisions. And yeah, for sure. Just having that as like an example because I mean, I struggle with that a lot. I'm not like a natural born leader. <laughs> at all and so when you get in those situations it's like oh i feel uncomfortable maybe i'm making this other person feel uncomfortable it's a lot easier to just not stick up for yourself and just go with the flow just because you want to keep that equilibrium or whatever is going on you know it takes a lot of dedication to stand up for yourself i think that's what we need to change and like Mm -hmm. in my side conversations with both of you i and that's, that's the part of me that like draws me closer to both of you and the work that you're doing and the intentions you're putting in the world is like that specific point. Imagine, imagine if somebody is a different uh, skin color. Imagine if somebody is a different um, sexual orientation, gender orientation. Like there's all of these parts of our identities that we've continuously people have had to stand up for themselves. Mm -hmm. Like imagine being like gay 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. Imagine being transgender 20 years ago. Imagine being sober in 2020. It's actually the same theme across all of these parts of our identity that, that appear different, but I think it's something in our own that are flawed in the human condition to be able to accept and see like the beauty and diversity uh, the fear of you are different than me. So what does that mm-hmm. say about myself? Like, this is the thing that I want. I really, really like wish for, for you guys to change. And like, I'm, I'm fully behind you and I will support you and making it, making it. So we don't even have to have this conversation in like five years from now. Mm-hmm. So somebody doesn't have to think it at all about like, I have to stand up to myself because I'm choosing not to drink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Can you speak to, we speak about this a lot, but you mentioned sober dating. You said the words, so I'm going to go with it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What has your experience been like with that? I would love to hear, hear about it just because we've dealt with it. But again, there's like a whole backstory that we, you know, that goes along with it. And uh, that's part of the conversation too. But from your perspective, what that, what has that been like? I was uh, seeing this girl in the fall, and then like one of my close close friends, I was like, she's the one I go to to talk about women, uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, and she's not sober. And we were just we were just we were having tea on the Sunday afternoon. And I was kind of probably like, I was like complaining. I was like, I don't know if she's into me. I'm into her. I think I'm into her. I was just like, I was going back and forth, and she was like. It'd be just a lot easier if you both drank, because then you would know the answer a lot sooner. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, ah, 
I didn't, I didn't say it out loud in my mind. I'm like, oh yeah, she's, she's right. It's true. Knowing that past is like built romantic connections under the influence that have like lasted for months and sometimes years. Yeah. So I've definitely like experienced that lubricant. Now what I will say is uh, the, my experience has been different. Like dating as a sober person in New York City is like A, the people that I have connected with romantically over the last couple of years, um, they've all been either sober or like pretty much sober, mm-hmm. which actually says something. Uh, this is the first time I'm realizing that, mm. but I, I haven't been on like multiple dates or, you know, thought of myself as seeing anybody who, who drinks regularly. Mm. And that's not the reason I, I wouldn't, um, but it's more of that's probably representative of other choices in our respective lives. Right. And that, that kind of signals you know, you may not like see the world the same way, which values. which is okay. Yeah, values and choices. So, yeah, it's 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 different. I, I don't know if it's like worse or better. I just say it's different. Which I know, like a very Buddhist answer. Like nothing is good or bad. Yeah. It's just different. <laughs> which is like fun to say, annoying to hear. But I'd say like dating sober is different. And probably what's helped me the most is just being aware of that uh-huh. and saying like, this is going to be, this is different. This is different than 10 years ago. And there's new things to discover here uh, and new ways to connect. I mean, obviously, I'm going to say obviously, but the connection gets deep very quickly, which I appreciate. And you can tell by this conversation, like I, I've won, I've won station on this radio and it's called deep. <laughs> 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 so, so that, that that sober dating, like my radio station, comes out very loud and clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's I think part of it is being comfortable with yourself. I think a lot of the reasons people drink to begin with is because they aren't comfortable with themselves. So when you say you know your radio station is deep, like I think we definitely identify with that. And it's interesting to say we've always kind of identified it. Sorry, Nick, I'm talking for you a lot, but. That's all right. You know me pretty well. I'll allow it. <laughs> Thank you. We've always thought it's because, you know, with our experience getting sober, we go to meetings and we like get down to shit, you know, like let's not waste time. Let's get down to the real stuff, you know, but I think there's that similarity with just sobriety period in that you are going to be a little bit more, you've learned to be more comfortable with yourself. So you're, you've learned to invest in authenticity and awkwardness potentially and all of that and really kind of seeing somebody as they are. So I can see how that comes up with sober dating a lot. Yeah. And it just reminds me of, of like the previous conversation we were having about just having confidence and standing up for yourself and just knowing what you want. A lot of times my drinking days going on dates, the date would be like a horrible date, but I'm just like, I guess if I drink more, mm-hmm. I might be able to tolerate this more mm-hmm. versus like, that's not respectful of myself. It's like, if it's going bad, I should just leave. Right. Or do something else. But a lot of times, like I relied on drinking to just be like, okay, I feel uncomfortable. I don't want to be here, but drink will make it better. And I can like tough it out. Yeah. I mean, I, I would actually re this, like hearing you share that, I would reframe sober dating and I challenge you to even in your mm. future conversations and for yourself to, to mindful dating. Nice. 
Right. It's about what you're bringing to it, not what you're like not bringing to it. Exactly. It's like <laughs> it, affirmative as opposed to. Totally. Yeah. There's an intention. And I, I am um, that actually that that's been a bigger change for me, like mindful dating versus sober dating. Mm-hmm. Sober dating is a component of mindful dating, but there's other components of mindful dating that sobriety doesn't capture. Mm. Uh, the biggest one, which means being like authentic, which you touched on mm-hmm. and like being vulnerable uh, and then being in touch with how I feel, but then also being very clear in communication. And that means like not leading somebody on. That means if I'm not interested, then actually in delivering that information right. <laughs> mindfully, compassionately versus like ghosting somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm bringing an intentionality to every single like interaction, right. which is not exclusive to the dating domain. That's, that's every domain. Mm-hmm. Like that's like as somebody's a parent or a teacher or an employer or an employee or a friend or a brother or sister, like that's a quality that can be applied to every interaction. That's right. But I think also with dating, it, it's nice to be explicit about it because, because of technology, I think, a lot of that has gone away. Whereas, you know, if maybe there's a little bit more respect, inherent respect, maybe I don't have siblings, but if you're, you're speaking to a, a sibling or a, an aunt or something, um, but there's this kind of throwaway culture with dating. Maybe all of this coronavirus shit has changed that to a certain degree, but I mean, hopefully, but I think it, it, it's nice to be explicit about specifically about mindful dating because it's so rare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The yeah. dating world nowadays is very like dehumanizing with like the apps and everything like that, you know? So you do feel like I could just ghost this person because they're not real. They're, yeah. <laughs> they are real. <laughs> They are. You're setting a very high bar, girl. I don't know if I can fall through on this. Oh my god! I try. I try and tell them. You, yeah. What? No ghosting's allowed. I don't ghost. Well, I don't even date anymore. Well, um, yeah. I mean, but, you're yeah. You're locked inside a house in South Carolina. So no, no, no. Even like previously, <laughs> though, like yeah, of course. Like nobody's really dating right now, but. I do aspire to be like Kunal, but man, you, dude, you set a high bar for just being a human. I have to say it's very impressive. It's very, uh, aspirational to me. Mm. Thank you. I, I think, but, um, <laughs> it doesn't like, hear, like hearing you say that doesn't make it any easier. Right. <laughs> I think um, it's like, you're right. Like that awareness. And I will say like with my dating, yeah, I think I have been way more honest and open with people since I've made this choice of sobriety to be in a mindful way. And when things aren't going the way that they're going, having difficult conversations and things like that and being more authentic with people just comes more naturally as I practice. I mean, this, this, this brings up a deeper thing around like having difficult conversations. Like if that's, if that's a skill, when in life are we taught that skill? And when do we get to practice that skill? Right. Whether that's, no, I don't want another drink tonight. I've had enough. Whether that's, no, I don't want you to touch me. Whether that's, no, that's not appropriate for this environment or Uh this situation. Uh Boundaries. Right. Yeah, it goes back to standing up for ourselves 
Mm. And we generally know what's right and wrong, good and bad, true and false. Mm -hmm. But I think there's still a lot of bad, false and wrong things that happen. And I wonder if there's this gap, almost like a bridge to what we know and believe to what we actually do and say. Mm. And that bridge is a set of skills and a set of skills, which are like tools that, that we need, like we need so we can navigate life mm-hmm. uh, with a little more peace, a little more joy, a little more humility, a little more compassion. Meditation is not going to build all these skills, but the first to say that, <laughs> maybe just create awareness of these are skills that are useful. Um, but these are all skills. Like, and that, that's what I, this, this is something that meditation has taught me from a compassion perspective is that like, let's say my mom is being annoying <laughs> to me. Um, I, I don't see it as being annoying to me anymore. I used to, I used to get triggered. Now I actually like start to like, Hey, why is she saying that? Like what's sitting behind that? Like actually earlier tonight, we're having dinner. My mom was being a little grumpy. And then I was just like humoring her. I was just like, I was being witty back to her. And then after like three minutes of banter, it got out that she was trying to order something online at Home Depot and she couldn't figure it out. And that was frustrating her. Mm. And she was being grumpy about like food. But I was like, no, there's nothing here to be grumpy about. So I'm not going to like take it personally. I cooked part of dinner tonight. Mm-hmm. And I just kept like giving her space. And the way I did that was by like poking her in a comic way. And then it just came out. And I was like, okay, that's what's bothering her. So meditation like just builds, okay, what's sitting behind it? So if, if, I'm, if I'm dating somebody and, and, and the person I'm with is like, is not being mindful, I don't have to take it personally. Mm-hmm. There's probably something behind that mm-hmm. that has nothing to do with me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I may be privy to it. and I probably am not going to be privy to it. Um, I just can like just assume and understand, okay, there's something there. I don't know what it is. So I'm just going to like not take it personally, which that avoids aggravating the situation, avoids the situation escalating, mm-hmm. and usually get it some space. Well, I think that's a wonderful way to wrap up our talk because <laughs> it's a wonderful mm-hmm. way to walk through life and it tells you what meditation can bring to it, which is an awareness of everything, of how you interact with people, spaces, your own minds. Yeah. Nick, do you have anything to add to that that can... No, I mean, I just want to, this is a beautiful conversation. I learned so much just talking with both of you guys and having like these conversations, like you're right, Kunal, it's not something I I used to previously share openly. And now we have this podcast where we're talking openly about these issues and it feels really good. And it feels really good to connect with other people like yourself and have these conversations and just open that up to everybody to do that. So uh, I really appreciate you uh, being on here and talking with us. Thank you. Thank you both for the initiative you're taking, the space you're creating for the world and the the very important ideas that you're you're planting seeds in lots and lots of minds about. Thank you both. Thank you. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us and listening to the incredibly wise and impressive Kunal Gupta. You can check out his recorded meditations at findfocus.live. You can sign up for his newsletter, which we also highly recommend 
that's at bykunal.com, B-Y-K-U-N-A-L.com. We also wanted to say thank you for hanging in there with us while we figure out the sound quality stuff. We're still figuring it out, uh, you know, with people in various locations. Always fun to have a challenge. Our new website, you should check it out. It's sober.company. You can put that right into your browser and you'll get to us. Please, as usual, subscribe and rate and share with your friends and family. As always, we love our theme music by John Tessier, courtesy of the folks that said so sound. Everyone, please stay safe, stay inside. Until next week, we love you. See how the, uh, the the sausages get made. Um.